If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? On this Veterans Day weekend, our prayer is as complicated as ever, Holy One, full of deep gratitude and grief. We are so grateful for those who have put on a uniform on our behalf, for those who held the line, for those who stood watch. We want them to know that their service has not gone unnoticed, that we honor their sacrifice. We are also so mindful of what it cost, certainly more than a discount at a restaurant or early boarding on flights, just can't make up for when they return home. If only we were grateful enough to put an end to war so that no one is put in the position of being killed or killing simply because we can't use our hearts and minds to live in peace. On this Veterans Day, we cannot bring ourselves to pray for you to bring peace, Holy One, for we know that we, ourselves and on our own, are quite capable of doing the things that make for peace. At the very least, We know that we can and should stop actively shooting at one another, a ceasefire now. And then we will figure out the next faithful step. But first, mercy for each other. As our sister Mary wrote, we all could use a little mercy now. I know we don't deserve it, but we need it anyhow. We hang in the balance, dangle between hell and hallowed ground. And every single one of us could use some mercy now. We pray in the name of Jesus, who showed us how to wage peace. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. 
Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. On Tuesday of last week, about 60 students from Oklahoma Christian School came to Mayflower and sat on the f- in the front rows in these pews for a whole hour to learn about how we practice Christianity. We were part of their class's faith tour, so they had just come from the Blessed Stanley Roth Shrine, and we were their last stop before they headed back to school. Um, Many of you are rightly surprised that Oklahoma Christian School would allow their students to visit a church like Mayflower, (laughs) a congregation that is proudly open and affirming and whose senior minister is a woman. As one student said, so you're like their real minister? (laughs) If you don't know much about OCS, those on its board of directors must be a, quote, born-again Christian having accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior and supports the OCS statement of faith which includes the belief that the Bible is the, quote, only perfect, inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God, end quote. While some of us in this room may hold that understanding, most of us have a more nuanced approach to scripture. That is, indeed, more or less why we were asked to host these OCS students. As their teacher explained, we want our students to cultivate a willingness to have a loving and intelligent dialogue with people who maybe see things differently than they do. In this case, there is no maybe about it. We definitely see things differently, most of which can be summed up in that we are a non creedal congregation. That is, we do not have a list of beliefs that you have to swear to in order to belong, or to be a member, or to be considered a Christian, or thought of as a follower of Jesus, or in order to participate in our work and mission, or to receive communion, or to teach Sunday school, or to be baptized. We talked about the Bible and our different understandings of it, namely how it is possible for it to be sacred 
without also believing that it was fed ex directly to us from heaven. <laughs> the idea that really seemed to cause them pause and the most uh, angst was my suggestion that the Bible argues with itself and retells the same stories in different, often contradictory ways. I was immediately asked to prove it. <laughs> so I asked them to tell me which of the two creation stories is the one they think we should take literally. This was the first time most of them had been told there are two creation stories and that they aren't identical. They actually took the Bibles out of the pew backs to confirm this was true. Although they did ask where the second story was located, they were also unaware that the story of Jesus' birth is found only in two not all four of the Gospels, and those two retellings are also not identical. Another claim that they wanted to confirm in real time. Some might be surprised that children who attend a school that strives to equip students to, quote, know, understand, and abide in the word of God and steadfastly defend the gospel in a post-Christian culture, end quote, aren't quite up to speed about what is actually in the Bible. Do not be surprised. This is very common for children who attend religious schools, particularly religious Christian schools, where they are taught not how to think, but what to think. I am quite aware that I may sound harsh about the biblical ignorance this kind of approach produces, and to be blunt, I mean to be harsh. The consequences of this particular kind of spiritual formation are dire. It leads to static readings of the text, at best stunts and at worst stops, spiritual and theological curiosity, and leads to a self-selected few sending everyone else to hell for not believing exactly how they believe. And most of us are in this room are all too aware how that can be fatal. Their visit was an important reminder of what we do when we come into contact with new information and it conflicts with our personal beliefs. Author Adam Grant describes what usually happens in these situations. As we think and talk, he writes, we often slip into the mindsets of three different professions, preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. In each of these modes, we take on a particular identity and use a distinct set of tools. We go into preacher mode when our sacred beliefs are in jeopardy. We deliver sermons to protect and promote our ideals. We enter prosecutor mode when we recognize flaws in other people's reasoning. We marshal arguments to prove them wrong and win our case. We shift into politician mode when we're seeking to win over an audience. We campaign and lobby for the approval of our constituents. The risk is that we become so wrapped up in preaching that we're right, prosecuting others who are wrong, and politicking for support 
that we don't bother to rethink our own views. This is, in part, why so many of us consider the Bible sacred, but not infallible, and an incredibly useful and humbling tool. It is relentless in presenting us with opportunities in the form of narratives and genealogies, stories, songs, and letters to rethink our views, to deepen our spirituality, to engage our prophetic imagination, and to find ourselves in a capital S story that is holy, mysterious, bigger than any of us, and worthy of all of us. It presents us with the chance to prove over and over and over that we take scripture seriously by whether or not we practice intellectual honesty and theological humility, to never assume that we've got it all figured out or to believe that there is only one interpretation. This morning for our consideration is this parable, the parable of the bridesmaids, a text that is among, I say, the most humbling in scripture, particularly for the preacher, because this parable is very difficult to wrap and tie up with a beautiful bow. Instead, as theologian Debbie Thomas points out, all I can do is keep the pieces scattered and examine them by turns, or to switch metaphors, to turn the parable around in my fingers as if it's a diamond and see what it reveals from each angle. I won't pretend that my various discoveries cohere and avoid contradiction, they don't. But maybe this is what they're supposed to do with Jesus' parables. Maybe we're supposed to let their meanings open and out, wider and wider and wider. Maybe the truths the parables reveal are various and indefinite, impossible to lock down. The parable is included in the Gospel of Matthew's apocalyptic discourse, and its intended function was to strengthen believers to remain faithful in difficult times by dramatizing the hope that God will indeed come and redeem God's people, writes theologian Douglas Hare. This parable imagine an es- imagines an eschatological event in the form of a wedding. This would have been a particularly powerful promise and hope in its original context an indication of how bleak things were for the people hearing the parable and for the people who read about it. That to get out from under Roman oppression, it would take an actual act of God, an apocalyptic event to make things right. When we think about Matthew's apocalyptic discourse in his socio-historical context, it really doesn't seem all that wild or silly or dramatic of a response to their circumstances. For there are more than a few current realities, personally and communally, that all fall under that category for us, the category of the only thing that will fix this is a radical visit from God, or for Jesus to make a return trip. 
So what if we entertained this idea for a minute? Just imagine, bear with me, imagine if the second coming were true. For many of those OCS students, it is a given. It will come to pass. If I were preaching to that crowd, my pastoral responsibility would perhaps be to encourage them to straighten up. If you really think Jesus could reappear at any moment, y'all ain't acting like it. Y'all sure be fighting over money and resources and power for folks who supposedly believe that the guy who said the first shall be last and the last shall be first is on his way. But I'm not preaching to that crowd. I'm preaching to this one. And the question remains, what if we entertain the idea that this parable is more than a simple exhortation to faithfulness, but is indeed a prediction of the second coming, which might happen this very afternoon? Set aside for a moment that this would get you out of coming to the annual meeting. <laughs> and consider it in seriousness. I mean, when was the last time, if ever, we thought, what if it's today? What if God's promised day comes today and the weary world rejoices, wounds are bound up and healed, all is forgiven, all is made right? Perhaps, then, this is one of the most important parables we can wrestle with. If we are really serious about making earth as it is in heaven, then the coming of God's kingdom in all of its healing and justice-making fullness is the yardstick against, we, against which we must measure all of our own healing and justice-making efforts. The wedding feast is our ideal, our goal, our destination. It is a vision, a standard, what to work towards as we labor in God's name. It might be helpful for us to rethink dismissing a second coming if it helps us to stay focused on the vision that we are working for. We might also rethink our assumptions about who the bridegroom is in this parable. When the bridesmaids who went for more oil tried to get into the wedding banquet, the bridegroom says, truly, I tell you, I do not know you, and then refuses them entry. And the bridegroom is often assumed to be God or Jesus, but... It is possible, given the context in which Matthew's gospel was written, that Jesus isn't the bridegroom in this parable. God is not the bridegroom in this parable. We know that the Matthean Jesus movement of the first century was in conflict with local religious leaders who considered their peers heretical and deviant. It is likely that there was much discussion, in fact, we know there was much discussion around who belonged and who didn't, who was in with God and who was out. We can safely assume that the discussion about who is in with God and who isn't never stopped. We're still having it. 
One of the great tragedies of the Christian story across history is that we are better known for policing our borders than for welcoming our neighbors. We think about this most often in relation to evangelical Christianity or the Southern Baptist Convention or the debate among the United Methodists or the curriculum at Oklahoma Christian School. But frankly, those examples are low-hanging fruit. The greater challenge is to turn that mirror around and consider how quickly we are to say, I don't know you, to those who believe or practice differently than we do. While the sign in the narthex proclaims that we seek to create a beloved community that practices extravagant welcome, and we pat ourselves on the back for having a woman in the pulpit and a rainbow on our church t-shirt, unlike those other kinds of Christians, this parable asks us to rethink how welcoming we really are. If Ryan Walters were to appear at the back door of the sanctuary, who among us would be the first to slide over so he could sit beside them in the pew? Or to invite him to Wednesday evening book study? When a private evangelical conservative school asks to be in conversation about how we practice Christianity, how quick are we to say, sure, the lights are on and the Bibles are out? When there is a chance for us to work for the common good, but our interfaith partners are those who wouldn't let our preacher in their pulpit or work on issues that we value, are we still committed to offering grace to those partners? It is our habit, typically, when we aren't being offered grace, for us to turn off the tap. No grace for you. Perhaps this parable is asking if we are committed to extravagant welcome, offering grace, and working for justice only if we get our fair share. Maybe this parable is showing us the truth of our own closed doors, if we have the courage to look. This parable has so many more angles to turn inside out. It probably deserves a sermon series. A whole sermon series could be written on additional options for consideration, like what we do when things don't go the way we expect. Or what really makes a bridesmaid foolish or wise? Is it running out of supplies? Or is it hoarding what we have when others are in need? There is much to consider. The conversation on Tuesday with the students did not end when the OCS students got up to file out of the sanctuary and head to the parking lot. As I walked them to the west side of the building, I answered questions all the way to the door of the bus. <laughs> and once we got there, one of the students asked if they could pray for me and for you, the people of Mayflower Church. So we circled up and held hands and a tall, lanky high school student from Oklahoma Christian School proceeded to thank God for this congregation and to pray that we would be blessed 
and that we would be faithful in our work and ministry. The whole thing is like a parable. There is so much to consider. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.